Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Hi everyone, Harry Robinson here. Before this episode begins, two quick things. Number one, while Jack's sound is crystal clear on this episode, a baffling and unknown error has affected mine. It's not too bad, it just sounds a little more like when we first started recording eight or nine years ago, so sorry about that. Maybe you won't notice, but I did, and wanted to explain why. Back to normal for the next episode, the second part of this patron mailbag doubleheader, but hopefully it'll be all right and you enjoy this one. Second, while I'm here, I thought, I might as well give a shout out to the project that's been consuming my life for these last few years, which is a book. I did mention it briefly a couple of weeks ago, but uh, I should probably talk about it a bit more as publication date is coming up on the 25th of September. The Men Who Made Manchester United is the fascinating, I think, oft-forgotten story of how youth, courage and success came to define England's biggest football club before Busby. Best, Charlton, Ferguson, Cantona, Beckham, or Ronaldo. Read it and you will discover how Manchester United got its name and its colours via a steak-munching, tongue-out St. Bernard dog, a knocked-out cycling accountant and a poisoned beer crisis. You'll discover the in-depth story of United's first successful team, two-time champions and FA Cup winners, including their first European tour on which they were chased out of Budapest by stone-throwing hooligans. You'll read about the inspiration and planning behind United's move to the iconic Old Trafford Stadium. You'll discover the lives, the characters and the motivations of United's first great manager, first great player and first great captain. You'll read about why, how and when the club's world famous academy was set up, the founding and survival of the Professional Footballers Association, how it was defined by United's outcast stars. You'll discover how Matt Busby was set up for success by the determined two steps at a time football fanatic Walter Crickmer, who almost single-handedly dragged United through a six-year global war. And included in all are the themes of trade unionism, industrialisation, the railways, public school masculinity, European nationalism and feminism. All of this framing the early story of England football of Manchester United out on the 25th September available to pre-order on Wardstones Amazon wherever you get your books um, maybe in some local bookstores once it comes out as well with pitch publishing so if that sounds like something you're interested in you might like to try it if you do I really hope you'll enjoy it it's been fun to write Hello everyone and welcome to the Manchester United Weekly Podcast. It's the international break, so we're relaxed, no United to worry about a cup of tea in hand. Or actually the club might have another abuse scandal to contend with. They might have invited a convicted paedophile to a game and are dealing with a major player-manager spat. Anyway, it's time to forget about all of that, or most of it, because we're having a patron mailbag episode. Our patrons who've supported us over the last couple of years, three years actually, and helped make this podcast possible every week, have sent in some great questions to guide these next one or two episodes over the international break. So just get stuck straight in. There'll be a bit of stuff on United's kind of current form, United's current players. There'll be a bit of stuff on our support of Man United. There'll be a bit of stuff on other football and some personal things as well. So let's let's see how it goes. I'm going to start with a question from Havard, who's been a patron since March 2021. And his question is, well, 
It's, it starts with a statement. It turns into a question, Jack. Amrabat was so good during the World Cup. If, and it's a big if, if he turns out to be that good with us and fits in perfectly with the team in a best case scenario, do you think our central midfield can transform to become one of our best assets? Maybe this is exactly what Casemiro needs to get back to the intensity level he had in the beginning. I think he would make a big difference if he's as good as we hope. I guess the tricky thing is what figuring out whether Casemiro's poor start to this season has been down to just a couple of bad games, which we saw him have at the start of last season, if you go back to his first few appearances for United, or whether it's down to Casemiro aging and his legs being gone, which at, you know, 31 is he now, I think, or 30, after playing 10 years pretty much of, you know, top level football playing 50, 60 games a season is not out of the question. I think whether the answer to that question is it's just a bit of bad form or he's on a permanent decline sort of changes things. Because if Amrabat comes in and can be an addition to Casemiro, then I think we're, we're looking good. If Amrabat comes in and has to directly replace Casemiro, we're basically in the exact same situation we were a month ago where we're like, okay, we've got one good six, but what if they get injured? Yeah. I did enjoy reading the opinions of Don Hutchinson the ex-footballer who covers Syria quite a lot, who, who was basically saying everyone in England seems a bit mistaken over the kind of player that Amrabat is. United aren't getting some kind of destroyer or hard tackler. United are getting a near complete midfielder who can do whatever you ask of him and, uh, and can tackle, but also has great technique and vision. And no one's suggesting that Amrabat's the best midfielder in the world or, or will be the Premier League's best midfielder. But United are getting a really well-rounded midfielder here and uh, how much of Morocco did he watch at the World Cup? Do you remember his performances? Yeah, I remember quite a lot of it and I mean in that Morocco team mainly because of the way that they played especially in the knockouts it was that sort of destroyer side of his game that really shone through but that was mainly because Morocco were a team that were having you know 30-35% possession in, in a lot of games playing against some really top teams but then if you know I read that same article from Don Hutchinson some others as well that mentioned that Fiorentina had, I'm pretty sure, the second highest share of possession in Serie A last season. And so Amrabat can clearly shine in both a possession-heavy and a really uh, possession-not-heavy team, which I think you know s- says a lot about that Don Hutchinson's point that you know Amrabat is a midfielder that can play different roles in different teams and can adapt to what you need him what? to be. No, go on. Sorry, I was just going to say, when we uh, last recorded after the... Arsenal game. I can't remember if it was in the Patreon Q&A or in the main show, but we were talking about the midfield's problems and I think it was in, in the Patreon Q&A, but we're basically talking about the future of, of the midfield and whether we think it, it's quite right at the moment. And we were saying that there, there are good players there, but at the moment it doesn't have the right balance to it. So presumably Amrabat will be really key to that balance because opposition dependent, he, he can kind of be the Connecting tissue yeah. between, say, Casemiro and Fernandez, or Casemiro and Mount, depending on on who we're playing. And he brings a lot more mobility to that midfield as well. You know, if he's obviously not going to play as a number ten, so he's really going to come in and play as either alongside Casemiro or replace Casemiro. And if the two that he's really going to be replacing there would be Casemiro or Eriksen, it could be Mount as well. But Mount would, if Mount does play, he's likely to play further yeah. forward than Eriksen, even though they'd on paper be in the same role. He offers much more mobility than either Casemiro or Eriksen. And so you would hope that by doing that, Amrabat 
would allow us to be a more dominant team because you can trust that he would be able to cover a lot more ground as we push men forward. I think one of the issues with Casemiro always has been, but especially at the start of this year, is that even in parts of games where we are quite dominant, if the if the ball breaks and we end up having to defend a counter-attack, Casemiro just can't cover the ground to to properly defend it. He ends up having to dive in, and that's why he was picking up so many bookings at, uh, in the second half of last season. You know, if Amrabat can come in and just provide a little bit more protection as someone that can just defend a lot more space, that in itself is going to be a really valuable asset. But how does it work then? Because at the start of this season, it was Casemiro and Mount Fernandez. Where does Amrabat fit? Well, it's not where does he fit. Who who comes out? Yeah. Well, as it stands, United are losing wingers every day. So perhaps <laughs> Fernandez will be play, playing on I the right wing. initially, he probably gets brought in as a Casemiro replacement at 60 or 70 minutes. Right. I think we will probably see him start quite a few games alongside Casemiro. But I think I think as the season wears on, it's going to be a big puzzle for Ten Hag to figure out because we now have in Fernandez, Mount, Eriksen, Amrabat. Let's assume that Casemiro is still going to be one of the first names on the team sheet. I, I, I could see Amrabat playing instead of Casemiro occasionally, but I don't think that's going to be the norm. So if we assume that Casemiro is going to generally be the one to play as our defensive midfielder, you've then got those other four to fit into two positions. Yeah. And really it's sort of three and one because we know that Fernandez is going to play as a number 10 in almost every game. Now, there's two ways you can look at that. One is that you could say, well, it's good because all three of those are different profiles and offer something different, which is true. Ericsson, much more suited at being that sort of deep lying playmaker. It's more of the, more the Man City model. But what City have is... Last season, for example, you knew Roger was playing every time and that was your reliable bit. And yeah. Casemiro is obviously that in terms of quality, but it it's, doesn't seem that way right now. What's interesting with Casemiro is it, it it feels to me, I don't know whether you'll agree, that he's quite a, he's a player that requires his rhythm because when he came into the United side in October, really, of um, 2022, it took quite a while for him to get going. When he came back from his three and four game suspensions, it took him a little while to get going. So it's not like you're going to be looking to rest him uh, on the bench too much. I think it's more what you're saying in terms of 60 minutes onwards, where you hope to to keep him fresh for kind of an hour in each game. But and that's possible with five substitutions. But is is that do, do you see it similarly? I think initially it will be. I think there is a there is a chance that if Amrabat comes in and plays really well in those cameos, and I'm sure he'll get more minutes as you know the games ramp up as Champions League starts and the League Cup starts. I think we could see him play alongside Casemiro more, yeah. but i I don't see him. I don't see him and Casemiro rotating. You know, one starts fifty percent of the games and the other starts the other fifty yeah. percent. I don't see that happening. I still think it's more as rotation within games, but then also I think Amrabat could come in and start alongside. Yeah, him, which I don't have a problem with. He's fantastically bold as well. <laughs> I enjoyed his signing photos. And all, all I could think about was. Because there was one way he was pointing to his name on the back of his shirt, and I'm in in the nerdy way that adults should really, shouldn't really have, but I'm delighted he's got four proper midfielders number. He's pointing to the name on his back of his shirt. I just thought, God, he's bald. So hopefully that's a good sign. I've got a quiz question for you as well. All right. On uh, Amrabat, we're not playing guest to player this week because it's not not the normal episode. But here's your quiz question: Amrabat of Morocco and Bayern of Turkey will be the first players from their respective countries to represent Manchester United. 
Morocco and Turkey will be the 48th and 49th nations to have supplied a player to United. So my question this week is outside of the United Kingdom and Republic of Ireland, from which country have United had the most players? Good question. I'll leave that question hanging for a bit. Don't give me an answer yet. If you don't have an answer after the next couple of kind of patron questions, I'll give you three multiple choice options. All right. And then we'll, we'll come to the answer later on in the show. Okay. So as a reminder, in short, outside of the UK and Ireland, from which country have United had the most players? Yeah, I'll get your thoughts on that shortly. But let's have a question from Tony Ryan, who's been a patron for about a year now, since September 2022. He says, given all the heavy end things that are going on at the moment, something lighter and for a bit of fun, predict the scores in each of our six Champions League game, please, gentlemen. So, Bayern Munich away. Let's go straight in there. I'm going a 3-1 loss. Oh, United are winning away at Bayern. 2-1. Yeah? Yeah. Why? I have a weird feeling. We have a, we've had a history in recent years of playing very well and our on paper most difficult away game in European groups. Go back to beating Juventus, beating PSG. I don't know why I have a I have a strange feeling that we're gonna suck, do a proper smash and grab at, at the Allianz and then get rolled at, o, at Old Trafford. Okay, well you've you've ruined the sixth game prediction already. But <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd be delighted with that. Yeah, the, the trip to Munich is a it's a proper bucket list. There, me and my brother have booked Tuesday to Friday. It's timed. At the same time as Oktoberfest, which has created all sorts of problems for United fans in terms of expense, flights more expensive. The accommodation is absolutely yeah. nuts. So me and my brother, and I'll tell you more about this after, are staying. Hopefully this is a, a real place. We found on Airbnb a shepherd's hut, which is in <laughs> a, a field basically on the outskirts of Munich. And it is a, a shepherd's hut with a couple of beds, a sink, a shower, the toilet is separate you have to walk outside and a load of sheep around so it's going to be one of the more unique ways but October 1st Tuesday night then roll into our shepherd's hut United on Wednesday we're both staying because we've got a bit of remote work to do on the Thursday and then see Munich a bit on the Friday and head home so yeah uh, anyway that's a serious um, deviation uh, so I'm going 3-1 loss at Bayern although Jack's convinced me a bit here you, you, did you say 2-1 win? yeah Okay, Galatasaray at home, 2-1 United. 1-0 United. Yeah, um, that might, I, there's a bit of me inside that are thinking maybe a draw, uh, but I'm not going to say it. Uh, Copenhagen away on the 8th of November, 2-1 United. Tough, but we'll win. And we need to win there because I don't think we'll win at Bayern or Galatasaray. 3-1 United. Nice, confident. Galatasaray away, 1-1. And that's optimistic. 1-0 Galatasaray. Yeah, that's probably more realistic. And Bayern Munich at home. Uh, 3-1 Bayern. Wow, that would be painful. Imagine, because that, that final game, I tell you what it should be in the Champions League this year. Wait, did and, we miss one out there? Did we miss out Copenhagen uh, at home? It, it does feel like we did that, doesn't it? I, I don't think we did Copenhagen at home. Copenhagen at home. 2-0 United. Yeah, 3-0 United. Uh, Rasmus Hoyland could come up against both of his brothers in that Yeah. Game. He's unlikely for all three of them to play, but his two brothers play for Copenhagen. I've been to Copenhagen Stadium before. It was cool. I went for, I went with family in 2014, just on a family holiday, and we went to a game. I can't remember who it was against, but it was a fairly empty, in massive ground, fairly empty. But what I did like was that near, there was quite a big gap between the kind of the fans and the pitch, which I wouldn't normally like, but in the gap, 
were barbecues. Oh, wow. And so you just walk down to the front of the stand and not loads, like one or two, but you'd walk down to the front of the stand and say, can I have a sausage? And then walk away with your hot dog and yeah, off you go. It was lovely. That's great, that. Uh, as uh, Many of my family holidays kind of as a, when I was younger, uh, my memories are centered around sausages, which are probably my favorite <laughs> foods. So Hamburg, I was desperate to go to, for, to feel like to draw Shakhtar Donetsk because yeah. we were playing in Hamburg. Oh, well, Shakhtar were playing in Hamburg. Hamburg is one of the most, one of my favorite cities in Europe. Amazing place called Miniature Wunderland, which is just, well, not just, which is the largest model railway in the world. And it's not for like nerds. It's, it, I think it's the number one tourist attraction in Germany. It's, it's incredible. So you remember when I went to the Dortmund, I went to watch Dortmund a few months ago. Yeah. I yeah. was there on a work trip and me and a mate from work went to a Dortmund game and everyone else went to Miniature Wonderland. Oh, really? Yeah. From like Interesting. in Bavaria, which is like Miles a away, very yeah. long way away from Hamburg. Yeah. Went all the way up to, well, to Hamburg to see the you, big I think you prioritised correctly, but <laughs> if you can go to Miniature Wonderland one day, then do. It's across like three floors and you've got the Grand Canyon, the Coliseum, the uh, Hamburg Stadium with like 60,000 like, individually and painted. They've got don't they? They've got like planes yeah. taken off and stuff, yeah. Planes taken off and uh, I wasn't really a Star Wars kid, but I'm pretty sure the Death Star lands at some point, which some people will, <laughs> will find very cool. Uh, also, on, yeah. the, on the topic of good food and beverage situations at stadiums, you mentioned the Copenhagen one at Dortmund. I mean, this is, this is not that common, sorry, not that uncommon in the States at other sport games, but I've not seen it in England before. They had like ro- roving uh, like beer dispensers. They had just yeah. like people walking around with like the massive uh, sort of dispensers of beer on the back to save you having to go into the bar. That would be good. It was, a, it was a great, great idea. I'm pretty sure in the Old Trafford family stand, they tried roving food, um, refreshment sellers. Right. I'm pretty sure that happened. Not that recently, quite a while ago. Um, maybe some of our listeners will, will remember that if they, they were sat there during that point. And there was a, t- uh, a game last season, I can't remember which game it was, where the equivalent of that, the the Man United, the very modern Man United equivalent of that happened when the card machines broke, <laughs> and so they started they they had to give the just I mean they didn't have to, but they basically just gave the food out for free because there's nothing else they could do. It's all these rollover hot dogs. I can't remember which it was either last season, season before, and these hot dogs were just flying around <laughs> in the in the Red Army section. It was yeah, good laugh. Uh, the game can't have been very good for that to have been the highlight. <laughs> Well, if it, it could have been in the it could have been in the Ranick season, by yeah, the sounds of it, that, that sounds about right. Uh, the the one the reason I brought up Hamburg is because we went on a family holiday there. Or oh, me, and my brother, and my dad went, and we were hoping to see Hamburg or St. Pauli play. But I've been to Hamburg twice, and both times the fixtures have fucked me over, and I've not been able to go. So we only went to Miniature Wonderland on both occasions. But the first time uh, we were there for three days, so nine meals, and I had breakfast for nine consecutive meals. <laughs> because it was great and the one I re- the food now on on a serious tangent but the food situation I really remember or drinks is a very long time listeners of the podcast remember that I went travelling in South America for three months in or a little over three months in 2019 and one of the games I went to out of many because that's mainly what I spent my time doing and it was brilliant was the strongest against always ready in La Paz the capital of Bolivia which is like three and a half thousand metres above sea level when Argentina and Messi come, they take a the Argentinian team take a cocktail of 
uh, Viagra and caffeine and something else just to try and stave off the effects of altitude sickness. It's mad. Like you walk up the street and you're just knackered and out of breath. But these lads play football and it's incredible. And I, I remember I was, the second half I was sat with kind of the very small, not ultras, but kind of dedicated fans section were making a lot of noise. And in the first half I was in the second tier in this massive ground, the Hernando Siles Stadium, I think it's called. And this really old guy, like creaking knees, was working his way up the steps of this fairly sparsely occupied second tier, freezing, nine degrees. I'd just come from the Colombian Caribbean coast and I was suddenly like having this crisis of why have I come to this cold place when I've just been sunning on a beach <laughs> in Colombia. And this old guy in a white scientist jacket, which was, I've, I mean, he looked great, but it was slightly strange, was working his way up with his creaking knees using a pet, what looked like a petrol canister to kind of hoist himself up each step. And he came up and he said, um, I can't remember what he said. He probably said cafe, cafe, but he actually also had hot chocolate, which is what I really needed at that point. And so out of his kind of petrol canister looking canister thing, uh, yeah, poured me a lovely cup of hot chocolate. And then he sat having a little rest for about a minute after his long way up the steps and then went about his, his business. Um, <laughs> and I had a great, um, I can't even remember what it was called, great kind of meat sandwich outside the ground as well. So yeah, that's a serious tangent. Tony Ryan, thank you for <laughs> getting us onto it. Uh, there is actually- a, a, <laughs> Some Champions League yeah, predictions to that. Yeah. Uh, there is actually a similar a question on a similar theme from Ethan, who's been a patron for well over a year now, since May 2022. He says- uh, Harry, what are your thoughts on the latest news of the Red Army section not going ahead for the Crystal Palace Cup game and potentially Galatasaray games too? Clearly seems to be a bit of tension between the Red Army and the club following an incident against Reading last season. Could be concerning long and short term as having no atmosphere against Galatasaray is, go Galatasaray is going to be an issue. So in short, the Red Army section is where I sit at Old Trafford above the tunnel and on the right side of the Stretford end. It's uh, designed for season ticket holders primarily but also members but because of the way the club operates things it normally has to be season ticket holders to apply on a game by game basis and effectively go and sit with your mates and contribute to the atmosphere it's it's designed for that uh, it now has safe standing in the section there's loads more context to it there is a lot of yeah tension between the people voluntarily organising that and dedicating loads of time to it and the club this latest issue, there was one boycotted game last season, not where people didn't go to the game at all, but where the section didn't run, uh, which was as a result of basically the Red Army have a section in the Stretford and right side. They would also like a section in A stand, which is right next to the away fans because it generates a better atmosphere. It gets the away fans going. There's a bit of uh, back and forth between them. The club, the council, Great Manchester Police and a few and like the safety and grounds authorities and whatever are hesitant towards that so for some understandable reasons, but not ones that are generally proved correct. And we're yet to hear full details on why the Red Army section won't run against Palace and Galatasaray, but I, I would imagine it'll be something to do with that, that the club won't let them have a stand as well, which is one of the key long-term aims for the Red Army group. So yeah, it's, it's a real shame. As someone who sits or stands in there every week, the, the times where you don't get to stand in there are so much worse. The atmosphere in other parts of Old Trafford can be terrible. The group's done so much good work and really changed 
the way I approach home games and e- even in the sense of I used to be desperate to go on domestic away games and that would be kind of the highlight of any season when actually the atmosphere at most home games now is better than most domestic away games where too many um, tickets are, uh, are landing in, in the so-called wrong hands. So it's a real shame. And yeah, Ethan, you're right. Galatasaray is going to be certainly an issue. Palace as well. They'll bring, they'll fill their section in the League Cup, I would imagine. Uh, they'll get 9,000 or something and they will drown United out because there won't be a loud section in Stratford End. So yeah, it's, it's definitely a problem. Jack, have you got a, do you want me to give you some multiple choice questions for the quiz question I gave you earlier, which was outside of the UK and Ireland, from which country have United had the most players? Or you can give me a thought if you like, just in general. Yeah, I've been trying to kind of rack my brains. <clears throat> United have a long history of Scandinavian players, but mainly from Denmark and Norway off the top of my head. But I just don't know if it'd be enough to put them that high up. France and Portugal are also coming to mind. I don't think we've had that many Spaniards over the years. I think we've had a few recently in the last like five or 10 years. I mean, Fra- France, I feel While like you're saying this, I'm, I'm just trying to write, um, I'm just trying to find the piece of paper where I wrote the answer down. <laughs> France is the obvious. I can give you, let me give you the, the multiple, because you've mentioned a few of them. Yeah, go on. The multiple choice answers are Den- Denmark, France or the Netherlands. Oh, Netherlands is a good one. I forgot about that. I can't find the piece of paper right now. I think I know the answer, but I don't, I don't want to give the wrong one. So, so we'll we'll delay a, a little. Just say bit that whichever one I say is right. No, I'll let you have a little <laughs> bit longer to mull it over while I remind myself of what definitely the answer is and how many players there were. And then, yeah, and, and for now we'll move on. Now's the time to save thirty percent on wedding jewelry only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Marek Garbowski, who has been a patient for an incredible three years since. October 2020. Marek, thank you for your long-time support. He says, and this will be probably the last question for this episode, and then we'll we'll have another one later in the week. Marek says, let's look into the future. Let's say Eric Tenard continues as manager for another five years. The club, unfortunately, remains in the hands of the Glazers. We have managed to improve our recruitment. Hard to believe this is going to happen, he says. And players who should go are gone. Taking this hypothetical scenario into account, how do you see our position as a club in the Premier League and European competitions? Is Old Trafford going to look exactly as it looks or will there be a change? What style of football are we going to play? Do you have even a tiny dose of hope of winning a meaningful title by 2028? Big one, Jack. So, Ten Hag's been manager for five years. United should have won a title, shouldn't we? Yeah, I think so. I mean, what percentage chance would you give Ten Hag being here if we haven't won a title by 2028? I think mine would be... Mm, 10. Yeah, maybe 10 to 15. I think the only way, I, I think the only way he's still I, here 
five years from now, if we haven't won the league, is if we've won multiple cups, we've come very close in the league, probably on more than one occasion yeah, as well. Yeah, that's true. Like if, if it was like we came really close in 2025 and then we haven't since, he won't still be here. But if we'd have, say like we had Arsenal's season last year, Twice. if we had that season in 2026 and 2027, I could see him still yeah. being there. Yeah. If you've, all, if you've also picked up a couple of FA Cups, maybe a deep Champions League run as well. I think he could still be there under those circumstances. Yeah, and I'd I'd still give a ten percent because of what that requires, given yeah. the rest of the question. <laughs> it's but yeah, it's basically saying if things carry on as they are now, but with a bit better improvement, what style of football are we gonna play? I'd guess closer to Tenag's Ajax once he's had five years. Is old traffic gonna look the same? Yeah, pretty much. If the Glazers stay beyond this period, uh so and and that's what the hypothetical includes, the plans around the old Trafford kind of what what the club was looking at the old Trafford refurbishment or rebuild option did involve building work around 2028 so Marek's asking about 2028 at that point if the Glazers are here it's I mean this is all quite hard to imagine but you would expect something to be going on with old Trafford if the Glazers are here they will have got some outside investment from some an injection of capital from some kind of thing like Elliot investment or or whoever which would have to pay for the investment into a new ground. So, yeah, <laughs> it's really hard to answer this because I just can't see it happening. It's so hard to stay as United manager for that long anyway. Not many people have managed it, even between Busby and Ferguson, even before that. So it, it's really difficult. Let's answer the bigger question. Do you, have a, do you have hope of winning a meaningful title by 2028? I do, yes. Because ultimately, I wouldn't, it'd be quite hard to drag myself to 40 or 50 games a season. There's always hope. Like I, I don't, you could ask, you could have asked me this every year since we've been doing this podcast back to like 2016. If you'd have asked the same question, do you have hope that in five years, in the next five years, we might win a title? The answer probably would have been yes. We're seven years from that now. We've never really been close, but that hope always has to remain. I think, I mean, do I think it's likely? No, but I, I think there's always hope, isn't there? There's got to be. Yeah. And I have hope on the Ten Hag. Uh, I I don't think United can win a title on with the Glazers' ownership. But I think United can win a Champions League. I'm actually not sure I agree with that. Which honestly, bit? That we can't win the league under the Glazers. Why? I think we could, but I think it makes it incredibly more difficult. But You're, you're basically relying on, on all I, the other clubs. Bear in mind, two are currently owned by nation states yeah. to fail, which has happened in one season, the Leicester City season, but that didn't involve Saudi Arabia and Newcastle. Football was different anyway. Arsenal have had massive investment. Liverpool were in a, an all right place and the Pep Guardiola juggernaut hadn't begun. I think it would require two or three transfer windows in a row where 75% of all of United signings are massive successes. Now, do I think that that is feasible? Realistically, probably not. But if that happened, then yeah, I think United could win, a, could win the title under the Glazers. But I think the chances of that happening under the Glazers is much, much less than it would be under any other kind of ownership. The problem is, I, it's not that I don't think any club can win with this ownership structure. I oppose this ownership structure at any club. 
But it doesn't mean I don't think they can win. And United showed that from 2005 to 2013. But the examples are so big now, or so defining and, and detailed from every season of the last 18, that I have no faith that United can win a, the title. The Premier League title is now probably the hardest thing to win in Europe. Well, in world football. Yeah. So <laughs> you need to be the best club in the world to win it. It would, it would require, it would require other clubs to come back to us as well. Like it's, it's something I always talk about, like let's, let's look at points, the amount of points you get rather than where you actually finish. In the last five or six years, it's generally taken 95 points at least to win the league. I, I can't see United ever getting there under the Glazers. To your point, that is the kind of ceiling that I don't think is possible under this kind of ownership. Yeah. If, look, if, look at who's won, won titles recently. City, which is which for eight years, even before Pep Guardiola came, everything was designed and built. Not just kind of the virtual infrastructure, but the physical infrastructure was designed specifically for Pep Guardiola to become manager. And then it, ev- everything's ended up being almost perfect. Surprise, surprise. Liverpool, who are kind of the closest uh, as a club structure under a talismanic manager with an incredible recruitment team, are the, are the closest non-nation state thing that has come to kind of recent football imperfection across the club. And even then they won one title and one Champions League. I think if you ask me, can Man United under the Glazers become like a 9,500 point a, a season team? No, because it has, to, as you pointed out with, with Guardiola, it has to be in a scenario where every single part of the club is built around basically bringing in the players that that yeah. manager wants with and backing that manager's decisions, which isn't going to happen to the extent it would need to for United to get to that level. If winning the title went back to how it was, let's say, eight, nine, ten years ago, where it requires 85 to 90 points, yeah, I think United could get there under Ten Hag with the Glazers owning the club. I mean, we we got eight. I think we got eighty-one under Mourinho is our best points total post Sir yeah. Alex. I think what did we end up on last year? About seventy-five. Stop paying attention to the league table near the end. <laughs> it was it was something like that. I think I think I said at the start of the, at the start of the season that United should be aiming for eighty points this season. I think you could get to eighty-eight, eighty-nine under Ten Hag is, but that's probably the, the very maximum if everything goes yeah. really well. And so that for that to be able to win the league, it's going to require City, Liverpool, maybe Arsenal to fall back. You basically need all of the current top. You basically need Newcastle to delay, Newcastle's rise, kind of inevitable rise to be delayed. And in that time, Guardiola, Klopp and Arteta to leave Arsenal. Possibly. And the chances of that are, yeah. I, I know what you mean. There is a there is a chance. If Ten Hag is the one, then he can overcome those things. But there have been two the ones in yeah. United history and they're hard to come by. And they're normally from Scotland. <laughs> we'll see. Um, Marek's other question, which is related, is if we finish outside the top four this season, how many years do you realistically give Ten Hag to continue before, his, kind of, before, before that's it? Oh, that's kind of what we've been saying. He needs to... He needs to stave off basically the pressure and you do that by winning trophies. He's won one. I think he could get away with a trophyless season this year if there's obvious signs of progress, but then he would require one next year. I think he'd probably survive if we finished fifth and we were close to getting top four. But the start of next year, he'd be under serious pressure. I think given the off-pitch matters this year, yeah, 
yeah, next season would have to start well. But I think, f- well, certainly from a fan perspective, people would understand that. And I think, yeah, I think people inside the club as well. There's a lot of faith in Tenag. He's doing really good things. And yeah, I'm willing to be very patient with him. And as we said last week, the, the uptick you get from replacing a manager is so often short term. United need to go through a bit of pain with someone who's a re- clearly a really talented coach and, and see where it gets us. Uh, final question for th- this first episode of the Patreon mailbag out of the pairing is from Paul Meacham, who is our latest member of Manchester United Weekly Podcast patron community. He joined uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Paul says, I've been bumping into gooners everywhere this week. So have I, because I've been staring at my parents down in North London. He says, uh, even on my bloody dog walk, still find myself annoyed by last weekend. Not sure why it's bothered me so much compared to other games which had more at stake. So, in an attempt to ask a question that is at the other end of the importance scale, what's your opinion on United's three kits this season? For me, I think the home kit's solid. Hate the green away kit and think the third is the third white kit is the best of the lot. Love the new logo. Shame the team viewer logo is so big and clunky. I would go home third away as my ranking like home three. being best. Yeah, I think the home's brilliant. My, own, my only thing with the home kit is I'm not sure about the black touches on it. I think United should be red and white, but I I do like the design of it in general. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. I, think the I white, don't mind them. I think the white away kit is great. I've got I've got to say I don't. The the, th- the away kit would still be my third of those three. I don't dislike it as much as everyone else does. I think it looks all right. I disliked it a lot when it came out. Having seen it in person, it's a lot less bad than it seemed. I still don't The love replica version. Do you remember when it first came out? The, the replica versions, they are terrible. Yeah. When it's but like, even those I've seen, I've seen like in the, public the, and think, not too bad. They're not as bad? No. Um, as Paul says... I don't think you really value a kit until a few years later, which may also depend on if you associate it with any success, which is absolutely yeah. true. I think last season's kit was was great. I hate but, any United kit with a Chevrolet sponsor on it now, for that reason. Yeah. Yeah. Although there weren't many good kits then anyway. That was a really bad... No, there weren't. Type. There were a couple of nice away ones. There was a, that nice blue... Uh, a couple of nice blue away kits. That's a real shame. I think United need more blue away kits and in the last few years we, we haven't had them. Yeah. I have an answer for you. So okay. give me a final guess, please. Outside of the UK and Ireland, from which country have United had the most players? So I'm gonna go I'm gonna go with the one that I didn't actually think of initially. I'm gonna go with the Netherlands. And you'd be spot on. The Netherlands, fifteen, France thirteen, Denmark seven, Portugal, Spain and Sweden, which I think a few years ago would have well, I know for a fact a few years ago wouldn't have been even in the discussion. All was six coming in a joint oh, fourth place. Right. My dog is going off. And I think that's a sign for me to take him out now for us to wrap up this first patron mailbag question. Thank you for listening, everyone. Thank you, patrons, for your questions. Some nice ones in there. In the second episode of this, we're going to talk about Anthony, social media, patience, our favourite United memories, an all-time 11, first games at Old Trafford, how we became a United fan, the difference between United fans in uh, Manchester, the rest of England, and, for example, the USA, the rest of the world. Uh, we're going to talk about Jude Bellingham at Real Madrid, Messi, loads of stuff. So that one should be very good as well. Thank you for listening, everyone. And um, we'll see you in just a couple of days. And my dog's saying goodbye as well. So goodbye from me, goodbye from Jack, and goodbye from Sam the dog. See you soon.
Podcast Network. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun, for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.